Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Elise Carreri, a doctoral student at the University of Miami. Elise joins the show to share a four-part adaptation series she did with PBS. She traveled to India, Bangladesh, Vanuatu, and Kentucky to share some amazing local adaptation efforts. We then talk about her PhD work where she's researching the topic of climatopias or climate utopias. We'll talk about what it means to envision communities that factor in adaptation planning in a more aspirational way. Architects and urban planners are starting to get their heads around adaptation, and hopefully our approaches won't continue to be so reactive. It's time to step back to let planners and big thinkers take a crack at what a society might look like that thoughtfully factors in climate adaptation. It's a fascinating conversation with someone who's been looking at examples of adaptation from around the world. Okay, upcoming episodes. Lori Schumann of Enterprise Community Partners comes on to discuss affordable housing and climate change. Crystal Skillman, an award-winning playwright, comes on to talk climate communication and a new climate play she's written that is being performed in London and coming soon to New York City. Yes, some great episodes in the pipeline. Okay, let's join Elise and see how PBS talks about adaptation and learn about climatopias. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today, we have an exciting episode. Joining me is Alize Carrere. Alize is a doctoral candidate at the University of Miami, filmmaker and educator, and is here to talk about climatopias and also the work she did on a recent four-part series on PBS called Adaptation. Hi, Alize. Welcome to the show. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right. Very excited. Your PBS series was really cool. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about your research that you're there at University of Miami. I'm a native Floridian. So it's great you're down there in Florida. But first, could you maybe get a little bit more background? I mean, I, I think you have a very interesting history and in how you kind of got into these things. And yeah, just more of your immediate history. Yeah, um, I'm originally from upstate New York. I'm from Ithaca. And I think one of the more colorful parts of my background that I often talk about just because I think it shaped a lot of who I am and the work I do today. I grew up in this house along the edge of Cayuga Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, kind of in the Cayuga Lake is the one that Ithaca sits right at the bottom of. And my parents had this old house that was a fishing shack that my mom had bought when she graduated Cornell and went off sailing around the world. And when her and my father came together and my sister was born, they moved back to this house in Ithaca and built it into the house that I grew up in. And at the time there was a very, well, still to this day, there's a, there's a 300 year old oak tree that's right in front of the house. And so as they were building the house, they didn't want to cut down this beautiful tree. The tree was kind of folded into our house. And I kind of call it a quasi tree house. It was a very dynamic home that we grew up in as a result of this massive oak tree that was sort of like the additional family member in our home. It wasn't inside the home. It was part of the front porch. But I have these very distinct memories as a child of my dad, you know, carving away more of the front porch every year so that the tree as it was growing wouldn't sort of distort the foundation of our home and dealing with carpenter ants and squirrels nests and oh my god the leaves we just were just we would be buried under a giant pile of leaves every fall because of the the massive canopy of the tree the reason i bring this up and kind of tee things up this way in my personal kind of story is that this house for me was a really 
incredible place to be a child to in, you know kind of integrate myself with the natural world. I felt very connected to it. And obviously on a much smaller scale, it was we were constantly responding and adapting to what was happening in our immediate little home ecosystem. And if I look at what I do today now, it's very on a, obviously a much larger scale and you know in many other parts of the world looking at how do people respond to profound changes in their home environments or their immediate landscapes. And when I say that, I mean more, how do we adapt behaviorally and what types of changes do we make to the patterns of our lives and our, whether that's agriculture, whether that's our jobs, uh, you know, in sort of a more industrialized sense. And that for me has really become something I've integrated in my work, both in my master's degree and now in my PhD, looking at how people adapt and respond to change. So that's a nice transition into the PBS series that you did. And You've really had a great opportunity to go all around the world. It was great watching those. There and I, I'm gonna have links in my show notes and everything. And they're like 16, 70 minute videos, and, and they're fantastic, great production values, and all that's PBS, of course. And so, tell us a little bit about this. Are the how recent is this? And I want to dig into a little bit of the history of how those were started. But like, just give us the basics of it. Yeah, it's called Adaptation. And I got the idea for this series. And I'll start by saying that I'm not a filmmaker by training. It's something I really learned by osmosis. You know, my background is obviously and I'm a social scientist and I, I didn't come from the world of filmmaking. But I, you know, was very aware of the power of filmmaking and media in kind of capturing specifically younger audiences and engaging them on these really kind of difficult and overwhelming topics like climate change and, you know, like a different human land use that is really altering all the different places we call home. I had received a grant back in 2013 from National Geographic to do a research project in Madagascar. This was after I had finished my master's degree. And I was very intrigued by a story that a professor of mine at McGill University, which is where I was doing my undergrad and my master's at the time, it was a geography professor who had done quite a bit of work in Madagascar and was looking at how farmers were adapting their practices to severe deforestation. And this was when I was a junior in college. It was when I was taking this course and he talked about this research and he said, well, we're not really sure, but we suspect that maybe the farmers are taking advantage of these very severe erosional gullies that are forming across the hillsides as a result of deforestation. He said, but, you know, we don't know. There's there's not been any research done on this. And I was always very intrigued by that story because I felt like, you know, this is an example in real time of a community adapting to some landscape change in a way that completely contradicted conventional wisdom around this idea that, okay, the only answer to deforestation is that we reforest. And this was potentially a story of a community doing something radically different and actually using that erosion to their advantage. And lo and behold, that was what ended up happening. And I had put in a grant application at National Geographic to you know, receive funds to go do this fieldwork and basically spent four months traveling around the highlands with a local collaborator who was an agricultural journalist from Madagascar. And we spent time interviewing farmers all across the highlands about these erosional formations that are called lavaca which literally translates to the word hole in the Malagasy language. And, and it's a very descriptive language. And really, they looked like just massive holes on the landscape. And if you go to my website, you can see some images of this, of these Lavaca formations. But basically, the research kind of gave way to this body of work that ultimately culminates in this PBS series that was just launched two months ago. You know, I wanted to know where else in the world are we seeing communities adapt in these very kind of unexpected, maybe, you know, surprising, innovative ways that might not align perfectly with what 
maybe the international development community might want to see a community doing on the ground. And in those stories, I think there's a lot of wisdom and practices that we can all learn from and glean insights from. And so this was what gave me this idea of making a digital series where I go to different places around the world and talk to communities living with profound change and, you know, really trying to understand, well, what are you doing to deal with these changes? And how is your relationship to change? You know, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And so that was basically the basis of the adaptation series that then, you know, I was able over the course of seven years to travel to four different places and really document those stories. So you can see those all in the in the series on PBS. Okay, before we get into the, those f- four stories, you, obviously we're starting this, but when did you get PBS interested? And were you pitching the idea as adaptation or you, did you have an original different pitch on why they might be interested in what you're doing here? Actually, I started adaptation at National Geographic, or at least my initial research was funded by National Geographic. The first two episodes were funded by National Geographic. And then I received another grant through the Redford Center, which is Robert Redford and his son, Jamie Redford's sort of social and environmental filmmaking group. And then at the very end, I received a grant from a PBS affiliated group called the Pacific Islanders in Communications, because one of our episodes is set in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And then that gave way to PBS giving us a larger grant to really finish it all. I think they were very interested in having, you know, this basically taking a look at these very global stories around adaptation on the on the local kind of community level. And so the funding started with National Geographic and then about halfway through, you know, PBS really came in as the the main supporter to finish it. Well, I I did appreciate that PBS was getting their head around the issue of adaptation. So so that's great. So let's jump into yeah. some of these episodes. I want to start with the floating gardens of Bangladesh. Again, fantastic. Great footage. I, you know, I actually working with some Bangladeshis right now, just in the uh, another job that I'm doing. And so I feel like I learned a lot about it, but this was just all new and it was great. You tell us what the core of that story is. This is the very first episode of the series, and it's the first one that we also shot. So this was back in 2016, actually, that we received the grant to go there. But what I will say is that what we were covering, of course, is still very much a a reality for Bangladeshis. And the story looks at how communities, you know, in these very low-lying areas across Bangladesh are building floating infrastructure. And some of that, we sort of start the episode by talking about these organic rafts that are made that are turned into floating gardens. And they're basically made entirely with organic materials. So water hyacinth, which is a, an invasive water weed that, in fact, is found in many, many parts of Asia. And they're, you know, it's, it's a, quite a problem in many places, specifically in Bangladesh, because it chokes up waterways very easily and it kind of floats on the surface. So what the farmers there have been doing is pulling some of this water hyacinth into layers upon which they will then place bamboo rods and then more layer of water, you know, multiple layers of water hyacinth. They let that compress down over 15 days. And then that raft will essentially become a bed upon which they can grow crops. And so they'll put fertilizer and, you know, cow manure or what have you, and start growing things like spinach or okra. The beauty of these floating gardens is that no matter what the water level is, the agriculture is floating on top of it. So as it rises, the raft rises, as it falls, you know, the raft falls. And I think one of the really interesting things about this is that they're seasonal. So once the monsoon rains come or the flooding occurs, once that completely drains, those rafts, because they're totally organic, will be chopped up and reintegrated into the soil almost as just like a a fertilizer afterward. And then they'll make another one of these floating garden beds 
the following year. And this is not actually an, a new technique. It's roots, as far as I understand, you know, there were some Bangladeshis we spoke with who said that their, you know, great grandparents had been using this technique. My understanding is that it's called Baira, B-A-I-R-A. And this is something that, you know, is being kind of revived in light of climate change and some of the challenges associated with flooding that Bangladeshis are experiencing. So this gave rise to other versions of floating architecture and kind of floating infrastructure that we see in Bangladesh. And so the story, go the episode goes on to look at a couple of other manifestations of that. So some more sturdy floating gardens that have duck coops attached to them and aqua farming and sort of tilapia pens. And then we sort of end by looking at floating schools and other floating structures started by a gentleman named Mohammed Rezwan, who has an NGO locally called Shidhulai Swanirvar Sangsa. And he's looking at doing a lot of different floating architecture for Bangladeshis, especially for kids who can't make it to school. So floating schools and floating libraries and things like that. And they had you get in the water there too. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <Better>. okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a shots. lot of questions about that. <laughs> it was great. But uh, to me, the most interesting thing was just seeing the school and then this notion, I think this is the broader point you're trying to make, is just like how a little mini community can sort of integrate itself. And, you know, of course, they've been doing this for a while, but like, what does the future hold? And this floating school was was really neat, seemed like a viable option for them. So yeah, that I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And one thing I'll add too about that is that I think the narrative we often hear about people, you know, in Bangladesh, for example, given that it is a very vulnerable country when it comes to climate change is sometimes I find a little bit, you know, it's, it's a little degrading in times. And I think that one of the things I found when I was there was that there are so many examples of Bangladeshis working extremely hard in very creative, innovative ways with the support of a very robust network of local NGOs. And that was something when I was in Dhaka that I was quite impressed by was the network of local NGOs, not the apex NGOs, but rather, you know, Bangladeshi run organizations that are supporting Bangladeshis across the country to come up with very sustainable ways of living and dealing with whatever challenges they're facing, whether that's agriculture or whether that's, you know, other jobs that are, you know, needed. And this to me was a, a part of the story that I wanted to make sure was highlighted, that there was a lot of local in innovation and ingenuity taking place that to me was not you know, that's not always amplified, I don't think, on the kind of more global stage. So th this was my effort or my attempt anyway, to try and elevate those voices and experiences and the NGOs that we got a chance to visit and, you know, see their work and, and kind of showcase what's happening on the ground in a, you know, kind of flipping the story a little bit. Let's pivot to your next mini film. Ladakh, India is the geographic focus area. And there's these things called ice stupas. And correct my pronunciation if it's wrong. Fascinating story. I had no clue that these things existed. Tell us a bit about what that one covers. It takes place in this in a very arid high mountain region of India known as Ladakh. And I was in touch with a gentleman named Sonam Wangchuk, who's our protagonist in this story, in this episode. He has been for several years now doing some pretty remarkable work around adapting to glacial melt. And I think one of the things that's important to remember for this episode is that when we think about the Himalayas and we think about very, you know, kind of mountainous regions covered in glaciers and so on, we might not think that they are water scarce or that they suffer from water loss or drought. And that's actually very much the case in a place like Ladakh uh, for part of the year. It's considered, as I said earlier, an arid high mountain desert. And Ladakh, because they rely fully on meltwater coming from these glaciers, because of global warming and the fact that, you know, the winters overall are getting warmer and warmer e each and every year, 
the glaciers are not freezing throughout the winter months, you know, January, February, and so on. And what that means is that there's a trickle of fresh water that's continuously flowing down the Indus River Valley and then ending up in places like Bangladesh, for example, where our first episode takes place. And that fresh water is an extremely precious resource for farmers and folks in Ladakh. They rely entirely on that meltwater from glaciers. And so this gentleman, Sonam Wangchuk, who's a Ladakhi teacher and engineer, was trying to think about ways to capture that meltwater and store it for when they do actually need it in the spring. So for basically when the crops are planted, it's really important to have that fresh water in basically April and May. But when it's flowing in January and February, when they don't necessarily need it, you know, what do they do? So he comes up with this idea of using very simple technologies and techniques to capture and store that excess glacial meltwater that's running off in the winter months into these kind of very large ice pyramids. And he, he calls them ice stupas because they resemble in many ways Buddhist stupas. This region is predominantly Buddhist. And they're across the landscape. And you'll see in the episode, there's just colored, the, the whole landscape is colored with these kind of white pyramid structures that are very important in the Buddhist tradition. They kind of represent Buddha in, in, in the physical realm. And, you know, monks will put prayers and little notes in them. And so these ice stupas, these very large ice pyramids that he's creating with the, you know, he's basically capturing and storing the excess meltwater into and freezing it into these pyramids, they sort of resemble the stupas. And so one of the things about this story that as somebody who's a social scientist and works a lot with people and, you know, the different layers of culture and religion that are tied into that. That one of the things I love is that this story is so unique to the region. And, you know, if this were happening in Norway, for example, they wouldn't have called them ice stupids, you know, maybe it would have been something completely different. And so in each of these episodes, and specifically, I think this is very much on display in the Ladakh episode, you see how the cultural, religious, and kind of economic backgrounds are integrated into the design solutions or the adaptation techniques that are on display. It's a bit of a technical process to explain. I think we do a better job doing it in the video than I could do right here. So I'll leave it to you to take a look at how it's done, but it's absolutely remarkable and really quite low tech. It's just with gravity and pipes. And it's a really, it's created a, you know, a big movement in Ladakh and in with the Ice Stupa team. There's many young people. There's now an Ice Stupa competitions to see who can build you know, the biggest and the strongest Ice Stupa over the winter months. And so it's really become a community initiative. Well, they are really cool and they are these ice pyramids and they're beautiful. And I, I, I bet there's already ice stupa tourism that has sprung up to go look at these different things because that's probably what yeah. I, if I was in the region. I'd go want to check them out and they're all different because they all, I guess, release water in different ways, but really cool yeah. adaptation there. Next one, and we're coming back stateside and this is Carp of Kentucky. And I, and I love this story, but I, I have some questions after you explain what this one's about. Sure. So in this short film, we go to Wycliffe, Kentucky in Western Kentucky. And our protagonist in the story is a, a Chinese American woman named Angie Yu, who has moved to Western Kentucky. She moved there about 10 years ago to start an Asian carp processing facility along the Mississippi River. Because in the United States, one of the biggest threats to the Mississippi River ecosystem, and now potentially the Great Lakes, is the arrival of Asian carp, which we brought here in the, to the US in the 1970s, and which have completely taken over the waterways up and down the, the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and kind of beyond. The story tracks her journey creating a processing facility to actually harvest carp rather than just seeing them as a trash fish, which they are typically considered in America. And 
she's really working on creating an industry around carp to both export it to places that do consume carp regularly and also to try and popularize it among you know Americans and to help Americans see the value that these fish have both nutritionally but also in terms of creating jobs up and down the you know the Mississippi River area where some lots of uh, fishermen and farmers are out of work because precisely of this problem. So she's kind of looking once again at how can we adapt to the situation? How can we think more creatively or reframe the problem and try and utilize it as a resource? Yeah, and I loved it. I um, I would love to see like even a re- reality show. I love that this Chinese American woman is in this <laughs> rural community and the people talk about her and they love her and she's created these jobs and she's a powerful figure that it, it's fascinating. There's a story to be told there. Okay. Yeah. So here's my question for you, though. This is carp, and it's great that they're figuring out ways to use with this invasive species, which has been awful. I don't know if this was on purpose or the overall series, too, of just sort of like the parameters that you set. I didn't see any climate change connection and not your traditional adaptation connection. So what were you thinking with Mm -hmm. this episode? Yeah, no, great question. And it's absolutely true that this episode has nothing to do with climate change. But when we started the series, we put it out not necessarily as just a climate change focused series, but more broadly landscape change. So as I mentioned at the beginning about my work in Madagascar, that has to do with deforestation and human land use. It's not, I mean, sure, there's connections, of course, to climate change there. But, you know, what I was working with and kind of looking at what adaptation techniques were, you know, being employed, it wasn't necessarily to, you know, like our, our global carbon budget. It was just purely the physical landscape that was altered. And this is a very similar example. And so you're absolutely right that this episode is not related to climate change, but it does, in my mind, is very much about environmental change at large. And all of every episode, climate change or not, has to do with human land use. And I think that's something I'm very fascinated by is kind of how we go about altering and transforming landscapes to our benefit and then have to deal with the consequences of that. And to me, that is an adaptation, absolutely, at the, you know, both personal and kind of community level. Once we, you know, have extracted something, once we have introduced a new species, once we have, you know, cut down trees, once we have, you know, emitted certain amount of greenhouse gases into our atmosphere, how do we then live with those, you know, the consequences of those actions. And so this episode kind of looks at that in a certainly a different way, but still thematically tied under this idea of, of human adaptation to environmental change. Okay, that is interesting. And just the fact, and this is where I I guess I would differ too, is that adaptation, you know, it's an emerging field. It's an emerging sector. People are getting to the adaptation space. There's schools popping up and it's quickly being associated with climate change. And I, I support that. I encourage that. That's what I use the podcast for. And so mm-hmm. the idea that, and listen, <laughs> totally disagree with me here. We are taking over this word and it's just, I, the notion of it's being used instead of the context of just general environmental change that those things are going to happen organically. You did it with this series, but then PBS, were they making a climate change series? Well, no, not completely. And so all I'm, I guess I'm arguing, and my, my listeners might disagree, not all of them, I'm sure a lot would, lot would agree, is that adaptation and that it, because it's this emerging professional sector, it's associated, and there's a definition by the IPCC, what adaptation means in the context of climate change. And that's kind of this umbrella that we're getting under. So that's that's why I'm kind of giving mm-hmm. you a hassle here is that yeah, because no, no, we want it to we want the public, there's going to be a big communication and decades ahead of what, what, what does it mean to adapt to climate change? And so that that's just where I'm coming from. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I would say when I started the series, I was very keen on mostly focusing on uh, adaptation to climate change related, you know, risks and impacts and so on, which is what most of the, you know, three of the four episodes do. Because this was meant to also be a series that could be used in classrooms and talking to younger generations, younger kids about I think the idea of adaptation is a concept we all know early on, not related to climate change, just what it is to be adaptable. How do we adapt to changes? You know, it's like something we all are familiar with no matter what. And so I wanted to lean into that and kind of give a broad set of examples. And there's, you know, several others that we didn't end up getting to make into, you know, films themselves. But there's a lot there on the topic of adaptation, no matter what, you know, field you're you're looking at. But yes, I mean, even now in my PhD research, it's very much about you know, climate change. And I, I think I'm glad to see that there's a, a movement around that and obviously a, a growing awareness around adaptation specifically for climate change. Well, for decades, mitigation was associated sort of minimizing the environmental impact of something. And then the <laughs> climate change folks came along. Nope, that's our word now. We're associating it with mitigating carbon emissions, even though they still use in the context right. of those areas, but it just mitigation, most people are like, oh, that's has to do with carbon. So it's interesting how mm-hmm. these things evolve. But all right, let's just, we're going to wrap up you have one more episode here, which Vanuatu, I used to live in Australia and I, I used to hear all about Vanuatu and there was those coconut crabs and it's just, I was always fascinated by it. And this was a great episode. Can you tell us what it was about? So this was a story about a community in Vanuatu on Nuna and Pele Islands who are coming up with creative ways to live with the present, the kind of growing presence of the crown of thorn sea star. So this is a very large sea star that's predatory. It feasts on coral. It has, you know, 10 plus arms. It's poisonous. They're native to the Indo-Pacific region. So it's not an invasive species, but because of ocean acidification, because of overfishing, because of nutrient runoff, their numbers have just absolutely exploded. And you'll get these very large outbreaks of these crown of thorn starfish across a reef. And they're so detrimental that they can really just chow down. They basically eat the coral polyp of the living part of the coral, and then they leave behind dead coral in their wake, the kind of limestone skeleton. And they are really a huge problem across, you know, many, even in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef has suffered from the presence of crown of thorn outbreaks. And so the story covers a community that's looking at how to, again, kind of similar to the Asian carp episode, like, how can we you know, deal with this problem by using the problem as, you know, a resource. And so we chart this journey of different community members in Vanuatu who are trying to come up with starfish compost and who are, you know, also using ox bile injections to try and just manually kill them one by one. You'll see a few different methods that the community is trying out. And, you know, I think one thing I just want to say about this episode is that it was really amazing to see this kind of local innovation and ingenuity on display. But I don't want it to you know, make people feel like, oh, and I I guess I should say that this is true of the whole whole series. These are not meant to downplay the gravity of these issues and say, oh, you know, we're very adaptable. We've totally got this under control. Like, you know, look at all the human innovation on display. I think what this series is meant, or at least what I hope it conveys is that adaptation is a trial and error process. And it there is a lot of failure. There are lessons learned along the way that I think we can all you know, learn from and that I hope that there's more knowledge sharing around that and certainly how adaptation can be, you know, both scaled or or maybe not, right? In some instances, these these adaptation techniques are hyper local and they're not meant to be scaled and, and it's meant to be for this community in, you know, Ladakh or Vanuatu and, and only there the way they're doing it. And that's not going to work somewhere else. This episode on the Crown of Thorn Sea Stars is, for me, was really kind of trying to showcase the process of adaptation 
and really understanding that it's not we just come up with answers like that. You know, we show that there's failure associated with trying to make this starfish compost because the starfish are salty and salty starfish is not good for, you know, salty soils are not good for growing crops. So we try and put that on display and you'll see that throughout the episode. But ultimately, it's the kind of perseverance and the sheer determination to protect their home and their reef and their ecosystems that to me was was very captivating and kind of embodied some of that spirit that the the series is trying to show. Well, it was a beautiful episode and you, your point, and I think a lot of social scientists will be looking at this in the years ahead is like micro adaptations, like these people are doing at that scale versus macro adaptations, like sea level rise mm-hmm. and ocean acidification, which you do admit, I mean, talk about in the the episode a bit. It's like, well, what they're doing, how's that going to factor in if you've got five feet of sea level rise? Well, maybe, but so right. it's just fascinating how people in, in the meantime are doing their own adaptations at a much more local level. So. Yeah, and I think it's both. I think there are some examples where adaptations can be scaled, you know, adaptation techniques certainly can be scaled. And and even like in a place like Vanuatu, you know, we made the video with the hope that it would be shared among other islands. You know, Vanuatu is an island nation made up of 83 islands. And what one community is doing over here doesn't necessarily make it to, a, you know, an island community on, you know, the other side. So I think we're trying to think about where does it make sense to share and to scale and where does it not? And I think that there's room for both. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up, but I want you to do a quick plug. So there'll be links in my show notes that people can watch these episodes. They're fantastic. It's just, it's interesting viewing. And, but there was an educational component too that you created as sort of a part of this whole project. PBS Learning Media, which is the educational arm to PBS, is a wonderful place where they compile resources and materials for educators to, and oftentimes it's built around some of their programming. So we created a five part educational curriculum. It has five modules, one per each episode, and then one at the end for how students can make their own climate adaptation stories based on, you know, some of the things that they've seen after walking through these four stories of others, you know, around the world doing it in their communities. I definitely encourage people to take a look at that. It's meant to be used for all age groups. We've adapted it to, you know, it can be used K through 12, but there's also a couple programs even at the university level that are using it. So definitely check it out because there will be information there for how to apply some of what you see and hear in the episodes to either your own classroom setting. Yes. Fantastic. Definitely check it out. Okay. So we are going to do a massive pivot here and now we're going to come back and look at the research that you're doing as a doctoral candidate at the university of Miami. Very fascinating. And I think very different from what you were doing with your earlier work, but I think I'd mentioned the term earlier climatopia. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about this. And I think this is going to be really important in the years ahead as people sort of visualize what does it mean to live and adapt to climate change and let's do it in ways that might actually make society better. And let's just start off. Tell us a bit about what you're researching and we'll go from there. So this doctoral topic came out of actually the adaptation work that I had been doing over the last seven years prior on the series. And what I realized was that many people in sharing the adaptation series out in the world, people would say, you know, that, well, this is great, but I'm not a Bangladeshi farmer or I'm not, you know, I, I don't live in Ladakh. I don't live in, in Vanuatu and I don't, whatever it may be. What does adaptation look like for us? And how can we think about adaptation here in my Upper East Side apartment in Manhattan, you know, for example? As a result of all of these kind of questions, and of course, these were also circulating in my own head, started looking at adaptation, kind of futuristic visions for adaptation in the US or, you know, even internationally in more industrialized contexts. And 
I started coming across, and I'm sure many of you who are listening probably have seen these yourselves, but these very glossy, flashy renderings of, you know, the latest smart, eco smart city or forest city or floating city. And I was really, on the one hand, very drawn to them because, of course, they're very appealing visually. And of course, who wouldn't want to live in a verdant urban environment with these towering, you know, apartment buildings covered in trees? Like that's like, right, that's the stuff of fairy tales. I was really also kind of critical of them saying like, who are these for and who has access to these? And if these are being put forward as the plans and futures that we will all inhabit, how is this really going to play out beyond just being something pretty to look at? And so this gave rise to my dissertation topic and the kind of what I'm terming climatopias, which are these climate utopias that I think are on the rise. I mean, I feel like there's a new one that comes online every week that I'm kind of looking at, but really, are they actually meeting the needs of the moment for the people who are most vulnerable and who really need the most support? And I would argue that not the case. This is kind of the beginnings of my work. I'm doing a deep dive right now into some of these plans and looking at, you know, how does utopia manifest in relation to climate change? Okay. So as we dig into this, it might be completely obvious to some people, but how would you define utopia? So people can kind of get that broader context of what we're going for here when we're looking at climate change. Excellent question. And this was something I spent basically six months reading and writing about myself in in preparation for my PhD work, because this is, it's such a complicated topic. So on the one hand, utopia, it's basically a term that has both positive and negative connotations. So on the one hand, utopia is visionary, it's enterprising, it's imaginative, it's futuristic. But on the other hand, and I think we all know this, that utopia is also can be very dangerous or authoritarian or, you know, a single author that has a vision and then imposes that on people. And, you know, there are examples of plenty of failed utopias around the world. But I was going back to the original definition of a utopia. When you go back to, you know, Sir Thomas More, who wrote the book Utopia in the year 1516, it's meant to be a radical transformation to the status quo, like system-wide, social, economic, and with the goal of bringing about better circumstances for everybody as compared to what was previously being lived. And so I take this kind of very original interpretation of utopia as, you know, kind of a transformational change to a system in order to bring about more positive outcomes for a greater number of people. And I think that there's naturally, as you're hearing me say that, I would imagine you're thinking, well, yeah, we kind of need that right now, certainly when it comes to climate change. And so, you know, there's plenty of ways you can take it. But in my research, I'm looking at utopia as an ideal state and place that is bringing about transformational change to a system to support greater outcomes for a greater number of people as compared to what we're living right now. Are you familiar with Dr. Susie Moser's work? She does this whole thing on transformational adaptation that seems like it would fit nicely kind of as a driver in what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. And actually, that's my PhD advisor, Dr. Catherine Mock and Dr. Kenny Broad. We have been looking a lot at the relationship of transformational adaptation to climatopias and and how there's actually a lot of connection there. Transformational adaptation in many ways is meant to get at the same kind of ideals that I think the kind of original definition of utopia might have been after. It's not a perfect connection, but I think there's certainly a lot of areas of overlap that I'm very fascinated by. And I'm working on integrating transformational adaptation into these concepts of climatopia and climate change as it relates to the built environment. Well, I think Susie would be interested in the sort of the final outcome of your work. I want to get into some examples of what I think I found is these climatopias, like looking at the history of the term utopia and what it means and what 
drives it? And is it being driven historically because society was under duress? Because I think, is it really practical to try to find an ideal situation that climatopia might represent when you have climate change looming? And my point is like, you have this urgency, you have this dangerous situation. Is that the normal sort of driver of utopian thinking? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think so. And especially I I did a lot of research on kind of environmental utopias, not necessarily those, of course, that are responding to climate change, because that's what I'm looking at now. And I think is kind of a new phenomenon, which is why I'm terming them the kind of rise of utopian thinking for climate change as climatopias. But there's a whole history of ecotopias. And, And I'll just say that in the utopian tradition, it's very common to find it's called a portmanteau when you put two words together. So technotopia, ecotopia. And that's why I've kind of landed on climatopia, which is meant to really indicate this like a new category of utopia in this like long lineage of you know different utopian experiments or projects there are many examples of projects that i think are capturing the transformational power of building and and how we can you know build communities of the future that are they don't have to be these kind of big fanciful projects that are green city where everybody's, you know, it's a Shangri-La and everybody's one with one another. I think that the climatope, so climatopias are on the one hand, there's this rise of these glossy renderings and these versions of them that are, that look one particular way. But I think where my research has pivoted over the arc of my dissertation is that towards the end, I'm realizing that there are plenty of examples of projects that have you know, they might not look as glossy, but they're doing exactly what we need right now for kind of supporting communities and facing climate change and facing the consequences of that. So for example, I'm looking a lot at cooperatives and how, which, you know, couldn't be farther from what we're seeing on some of these, you know, the the big fancy architectural proposals, but like, there's a cooperative architecture group in based out of Barcelona who are looking at the power of community land trusts and different ownership structures of housing and using mass timber and you know using different building materials that support both in many ways mitigation and adaptation in their design and i think that's really if i look at like okay well what is an ideal climatopia. Well, it's one that brings about, you know, an increased quality of life for residents. It's both kind of dealing with adaptation and mitigation, or maybe you have one or the other. I've kind of created categories of different types of climatopias based on whether they're more mitigation focused or adaptation focused. You know, there's a certain degree of social cohesion and unity within that's built by not feeling like you're in like this, like kind of cutthroat capitalistic order that makes you in competition with everybody around you. So I think there are examples of that, you know, you might not on the surface look like a utopian project, but that actually capture a lot of what I'm interested in when we think about living with climate change in ways that still allow people to, you know, live dignified and holistic lives. Well, you said you've been doing some research on what maybe some examples that are out there. And I I asked around myself because I was thinking, what are some of these very thoughtful, idealistic ways of incorporating climate change into resilience planning? And so I just want to throw out a few. And if you've heard of them, great. If you haven't, no worries. And I'm just going to toss them out. So there's this whole, it's sort of a conference approach, but keeping history above water. And there's resilience by design, which I think probably is one of the more well-known ones. Mm -hmm. And then Envision Nantucket, that's really more local. And so these are attempts by these local communities, like they're going through the sort of, I guess, the process of what you've described, where they're bringing in the architects and, you know, urban planners and such, and they're making these idealized visions of what the future could be with climate change. And I've been exposed a bit to them. I've done some interviews and such. But yeah, I just wondering if with your own research, encountering these... 
are these practical ways to start really thinking about adaptation? And I guess maybe that goes to the core part of what your research is about. Yeah, I do think so. And I think the reason I think that is that the focus of my research is really through the lens. I'm looking critically at architects and designers specifically and the profession of architecture and urban, you know, urban planning, professions of urban planning and architecture. Because I think that there needs to be, if we're, if we are going to be designing for climate change adaptation and coming up with different techniques or, you know, proposals, it starts, I think, in many ways with the the professionals in that space saying, okay, I I need to think about this in a more integrative way. I need to be working with the community. It can't just be somebody coming in and saying, okay, this is a great adaptation solution. And so one of the key pieces of my research is really the the involvement of community members in design. And I think that participatory design or participatory planning, there's 101 words for it, is when we talk about successful adaptation, I I don't see any world in which that can happen. I don't see any world in which adaptation can happen successfully without the involvement of the communities and community members for whom these plans are designed. And so when we talk about climatopias and these urban design proposals that are very kind of flashy, most of them completely lack in that department. So when I look at which are the proposals that are really meeting the needs of the moment, a lot of them are much more kind of on the ground, working with the community members. The community members have an active voice and role in what they're, what's being designed. And I do think that that is, you know, one of, if not the only kind of key ingredient for for successful adaptation. I mean, it has to be a community-oriented process. Otherwise, buy-in is very, very difficult, and you can face a lot of problems and hardship along the way. Well, I would ask, too, just like, how do you get started thinking about a, designing a climatopia and, you know, maybe just an ambitious university program, whatever, but even in your own, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, is even in your own backyard there, you have the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact in these four counties, and they're starting to really think about climate change for these local communities. And I think they cover a lot of it. It's sort of like a bureaucratic approach, but it, to me, that that to me is sort of like phase one of really trying to get to a climatopia. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be a coalition of, of different players and people involved. And of course, when anything becomes more participatory, it can get messier for sure. But I think the payoff of that is much greater. And it's important that we don't get bogged down by the, you know, the challenges of kind of working, working through some of these more collaborative projects, which certainly have longer time frames. And, you know, you have to build that into your design, which, you know, here, certainly in a place like Miami, where I'm living is like, buildings are just mushrooming up over the course of six months. So it's pretty hard for that to, you know, that practice to be put in place when you're seeing the speed of development here. But I do think that there's a a huge, it's important to have multiple players involved, like, you know, the different organizations, NGOs, architects, the private sector. I mean, it, it has to be a collaborative process. Yeah, I, I just don't see how it's going to work if it's not that way. Architects and urban planners will be key players in thinking about these things. Do you f- feel that their schools, when they're coming out of universities, that they're even prepared for this? Or is it just sort of the really random person that kind of even is thinking about climate change? I, I, I'm discovering that's really true. Adaptation really hasn't made its way into a lot of the various programs out there. No, it's, it's a great question. And I think I'm still actually 
trying to get at the bottom of that myself. But what I can say I've seen preliminarily is that there is a growing recognition that in architecture programs, certainly like in undergraduate programs, that there's they're trying to create more, you know, studio projects, courses that integrate, that, that require students to not just come up with a design for a problem and then put it together as their final project, but rather partner with local organizations that are already doing a lot of the on the ground community based work so that that collaboration is baked in from the beginning. So I do think that, you know, from a curriculum standpoint, there are there's a growing awareness that there needs to be a bit more integration taking place between the architects and the design community and the places where they're, you know, for whom they're designing. All right. And some of the materials that you shared with me, you had some some great terms. And so there's the notion of the um, mitigation climatopia, and then you had adaptation climatopia, and you kind of described, and you separated those two out. And But obviously, there'd probably be a lot of overlap. Can you describe what you mm-hmm. meant by those terms? Yeah, I'm trying to categorize and make sense of this growing landscape of climatopias. There's so many out there. In my attempts to do that, I've sort of come across a difference between mitigation climatopias and adaptation climatopias. Mitigation climatopias tend to be projects or design proposals that are focusing exclusively on drawing down carbon. So like they might be using mass timber, they might be be a very dense urban project such that it's not going to create urban sprawl and take away from, you know, other green sites in the area. They might be these kind of net zero carbon cities. Now, I would argue that there's some problems there with that because they don't take into account the full life cycle of building a net zero city in the first place, which has a huge carbon footprint. We're seeing a lot of that actually in the Middle East where, you know, they'll say, okay, we're going to build kind of zero carbon city. Well, it's like, okay, that's great once it's up and running, but that does not at all account for the fact that to create that city in the first place, your, you know, your carbon budget's through the roof. Then adaptation climatopias are those that are really focusing on designs that adapt to the, the challenges, you know, that are being felt. So floating cities or floating architecture, like the Bjarke Engels group, that's one of the biggest kind of architecture firms that I'm tracking in terms of the materials that they're putting out as it relates to these kind of climate specific design proposals. They have a huge project called Oceanic City in collaboration with Mark Collins Chen, looking at how can we create floating architecture, floating infrastructure that's modular, that can be expanded upon or built on as the population of an area grows. That's an example of like an adaptation climatopia or, you know, maybe what else have I seen? A couple, you know, other designs that are really trying to live with the the challenges that, you know, we're already experiencing, whether that's extreme heat or wildfires. There are, as you, as you mentioned, many examples that are doing both. So that cooperative that I mentioned in Barcelona, La Borda, they are on the one hand, both dealing with, you know, far more sustainable materials, and it's a retrofit. And this is something I've gotten very interested in in my work is that, you know, climatopias don't have to be a greenfield development, you know, starting from scratch, there's lots of what they call brownfield development, or, you know, development that's taking place on existing lots or buildings or retrofitting. And I think there's a huge potential there for, you know, better development moving forward. And from certainly from like a carbon footprint standpoint to be working with what we already have. And that is both simultaneously a mitigation climatopia and an adaptation climatopia if it's in a place, for example, that's looking to to cope with the effects of sea level rise or something of that nature. I'm just fascinated by the idea that when you're doing adaptation planning out there, a lot of cities are are, are getting better. There's, we still have a long way to go. And so they do some things that are thoughtful, that they're looking at the long term. But no matter what they do there, a lot of, of these communities are really going to have to be reactive to 
you know, disasters that, that occur in, you know, Miami, you need, mm-hmm. you need a hurricane or sea level rise. And so even though you've put all this thought into the, this developing this climatopia, when these impacts occur, have you found any examples of where communities really do that well? And you think about the investment that goes into, you know, refugee camps, like when people have to move because their areas have mm-hmm. been flooded and stuff and integrating that more disaster part of dealing with climate change to the more idealistic way of planning long-term around climate change. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, They they seem like they're at at odds with each other and they're always going to undermine that more idealistic climatopia approach. Yeah. And no, and that makes total sense. And I think that there's a lot of examples of projects that are now like disaster resilience planning is, is its own, you know, burgeoning field of, of study and practice. And I will say that sure, I think climatopias are definitely more in the camp of, you know, not necessarily acute disaster, but kind of chronic change and ongoing and kind of longer term. But I have found a couple of different affordable housing examples of like, how do we in a place that is maybe more prone to disasters, how can we build affordable housing that is strong, you know, better withstand some of those, whether it's high winds or, or, or flooding. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a climatopia, but it certainly is getting at exactly that, that kind of in between there that you're talking about, like being able to respond to disaster, but also still longer term being a good example of how we're going to live in the future. It's a tricky one because I haven't, and especially when it comes to like things like wildfires, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I have not seen very many like good adaptation examples to things like that in the built, like when we're talking about homes and buildings. I mean, there's a couple in Australia that I've, that I've seen, but it's just so catastrophic that it's like, I, I don't know how you adapt to that. So I want you to think about my listeners, a lot of them, you know, very wonky people, a lot of, you know, government people, nonprofit people, policy people. And I think they would be very excited that there'd be a more thoughtful, idealistic way of planning around, you know, adaptation and climatopia is it. What about your work? Like when when you're done and the sort of the tools and the resources that you you develop, how does that make its way out there as policy tools? Yeah, I'm trying to take what I'm learning from all of this research around building and design and infrastructure. Because remember, a lot of my entry points to this topic are coming from a place of design. But what I've realized over the course of my research is that that's actually a very small piece to the puzzle. And sure, we can build resilient cities and and buildings and ecosystems in which we, you know, our life plays out. But so much of it at the end of the day comes down to people and how are people looked after and how are those relationships being cultivated? And of course, design has a really important role to play in that because how we design cities and how we design buildings and, and so on can very much encourage or discourage certain interactions. And so when I think about how my work will translate into policy or into action, I'm really now focusing on not just the, the kind of infrastructure element, if you will, but how can we support policies that encourage more social cohesion and community building. And like I said, I mean, I've been doing a lot of research on on cooperative models and not to say that that's going to be the the kind of silver bullet, but how can people have greater ownership and stake and voice in the matter so that it's not just left to a designer to come in and somebody to say, hey, this is what this is what we're going to do to make, you know, armor up your city and armor up your your life so that you can withstand these challenges. So I guess the short answer is I'm still working it out, but I'm very interested in how we can 
you know, kind of explore new forms of living and ownership of homes, of property, and how that could translate to stronger uh, solidarity and cohesion among people when it comes to climate change. Well, the reason I bring it up too is, again, adaptation is such a new emerging area that a lot of people just looking for, well, how do I help this community deal with flood? And I think we're slowly getting the time to really think about, okay, who are our aspirational leaders out there, people who have a vision of what adaptation means for society? And you're getting more and more of that, and that's that's what you're doing. I just think there'll be a demand for that, and that urban planner Mm -hmm. working for the city, they might... (laughs) That might not be that useful to them, but I think there needs to be that vision or multiple visions to kind of help create communication narratives around adaptation. And we just, it's been a very wonky, clunky sector. And I think it needs a lot more visionaries kind of coming into the space. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm very drawn to architects and planners and designers and the work they do, because I think they are very uniquely positioned in society to offer up new ideas, out of the box ideas, visions that people aren't thinking about. And I don't think we should dismiss those. I mean, I think it's very natural. I've seen a lot of my colleagues be very dismissive of, oh, it's just another utopian experiment. I don't think that's necessarily always true. And I think we should look at how like you need the dreamers in in society to help you kind of see what other possibilities exist. And so my work is really trying to understand and kind of translate some of the visions of dreamers. And I I think architects and designers have a really important role there and then translate it into a space that really is, you know, how can we do that fairly? How can we do that equitably? How can we do that in ways that ensure the longevity of, you know, our communities and the next generations? And so kind of, to me, it's both a very inspirational place to be, but also, you know, you just have to kind of be critical in, in certain ways of how that those designs and those visions manifest. And, you know, we can't just instantly glom on to the next billionaire who has an idea for, uh, you know, a city in the Nevada desert somewhere, which, you know, we've seen plenty of examples of that. But how can we really think about, okay, we need those big visions. And then we also need ways for communities to be deeply involved in those visions and have their voices heard and, you know, their ideas and so on accounted for. So I, I guess it's it's kind of both. And I, I want to be very clear that I'm in this space because I really find that there's value in both the dreamer side of things and also the critic side of things. No, I like the idea that we need more adaptation dreamers. We obviously need the people on the ground doing their thing, but we need people kind of thinking big picture and and such, and that's not happening enough. So this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to wrap things up by just asking, what's next for you? What's going to keep you busy over the next six months to a year? My research. (laughs) I'm entering the hardcore phase of, you know, really trying to get some of this work published and out there and really, yeah, spend the next six months finishing up a couple of my dissertation chapters and hopefully be on the other side of it about a year from now. It's been a very interesting journey. I will say I basically lived the pandemic in utopia. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Okay. And last question I ask all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast for me to interview, who would it be? I would recommend, can I recommend two people? That always happens. Okay, go on. (laughs) It's two people and they're both on my PhD committee and I have just 
an an incredible amount of respect for their work. Dr. Jola Ajabadi, who's at Portland State University, she does a lot of work. In fact, she's been very instrumental in shaping some of my thinking around this topic of climatopias and urban futures and resilience for climate change. And my committee chair, Dr. Catherine Mock, who's a professor here at the University of Miami, who also has been just hugely important in my own research and the development of my thinking. So she's also working closely on topics of climate change adaptation and managed retreat. Actually, I had Dr. Mock on the podcast a long time, and she was one of my first, like my first year I had her on when she was at Stanford. So yes, very familiar with her Oh, work. wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's been a little while. Great recommendations. In that case, I would say Jola. Okay. Okay. <laughs> By default. And I can give some contact information from you later, but thank you so much. Really cool work that you're doing and congratulations on the PBS series. It's important that we get every mode of communication out there talking about adaptation and just thank you for, for those efforts and thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Doug. It's a real pleasure. I love your show and I'm honored to be on it. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Elise for coming on the podcast. There's some real exciting work developing in the adaptation space. Elise's notion of climatopias shows that our sector is maturing and it's prime for some big thinkers to help create some narratives that will capture the public's imagination. It's been a wonky subject for far too long. Climate change will not be easy to plan for and there will likely be a lot more surprises than we can predict. But society-wide, if we start imagining how we're going to adapt stable communities to these impacts, then we need to think big. I look forward to seeing more examples of climatopias start to emerge. If you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look at the podcast library. We have covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on many of the most important adaptation issues. Managed retreat, climate reparations, climate impacts on the LGBT community, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues and adaptation, legal implications of adaptation, and nature-based solutions to resilience. Okay, folks, that is just scratching the surface, so definitely take a look in the podcast library. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, you hear me talk about this every episode, but consider sponsoring an episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with some climate professionals around the world. I frequently go on location to record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work that you're doing. I've done these with various groups like NRDC, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, or Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. And most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. It's a good way to show off your work. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there is a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out and let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at public or corporate events, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy this. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they're a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can reach me at americadaps.org. And for my regular listeners, word of mouth is so critical. Please take a moment and plug America Daps on all your favorite social media feeds. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Tell me what you do. It's the highlight of my week when I hear from you guys. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.